Welcome to Museums and Chill, a podcast by the International Council of Museums, where we talk everything and anything museums. This is Ana Paula from ICOM, and today our guests are Amy Paon, Canada Research Chair, Indigenous Education and Governance at Simon Fraser University, and Barbara Fillon, Culture Program Officer at the Canadian Commission of UNESCO. Amy and Barbara are here to talk about the rematriation of the 36-foot totem pole from Scotland. Welcome, Amy and Barbara, to Museums of Chill, and thank you for being here. Thank you for inviting us. Yes, thank you. Hello. <laughs> to give a bit of context to our audience, the National Museum of Scotland has agreed to repatriate a memorial totem pole, which was stolen in 1929, following an in-person appeal by an indigenous delegation, Denise Gough. Amy, could you... Please tell us about what rematriation means and how is it different from repatriation? Sure, thank you. And I'll just also introduce uh, my Niska matriarch name, which is Noxdawit, Noxdawit Niskani, Amy Parent Wamaye, Wilps Nistel Wolwitgui. So I've just greeted you in uh, the Niska language and I've explained that my Niska name is Noxdawit. And that translates as mother of the Raven Warrior Chief named Dawit. I come from the Gnadic clan, I come from the house of Nistal. And I come from the village of Lakalzap in the Niska Nation in northwestern British Columbia, Canada. And on my father's side, I'm also a German and French ancestries. And just to talk a little bit about the term rematriation, which might be new for some of your listeners, uh, we are a matrilineal society as Niska peoples. And so if you are born Niska, it means that your mother is Niska. Your, your mother's Niska, you're Niska. So it's important for us to recognize our social structure while also challenging patriarchal terms that don't actually apply to us. And so initially, when I first started off on this project, uh, I also unconsciously used the term repatriation. But as my awareness has grown, as well as I, I believe stepping into some of the matriarchal duties that I've been called upon to do, I have been doing further thinking on that term. And so for us, the appropriate term is rematriation. And certainly there is a body of scholarship that supports that as well as ongoing cultural practices in many Northwest Coast communities or communities that are matrilineal. And so we have some scholarship from Dr. Robin Gray, who is a Simshan scholar, who also comes from a matrilineal society. And so she defines rematriation as being grounded in Indigenous law. This means that any movement to recover disinterred ancestors or stolen, misappropriated or commodified belongings from states, subjects and institutions must go beyond repatriation to true, true reparation and redress. And so for us, that means we are working firmly within our Niska Ayuk, which is our law and our protocols, um, which really started at the beginning of time for us, well over 10,000 years ago. So part of this conversation, part of what we're doing is really trying to change the discursive framing of what we have taken for granted uh, with often um, unconscious forms of museum terminology. I also recognize that as Indigenous peoples, uh, I can't speak for every Indigenous group, and I also recognize that there are many different types of social structures that exist within Indigenous communities. So the term repatriation could apply to those that do have patrilineal systems, but for us, I would say that we are rematriating in everything that we're doing. Right, thank you. Thank you so much for that explanation. Could you tell us what is a memorial totem pole and what is its significance? Sure. Yeah, so for us, the totem pole is, this totem pole in particular, is a belonging. And so part of our, our discursive reframing is also ensuring that the relationships uh, with our cultural treasures are regarded as ancestors and that we're moving beyond positivist terminology that objectifies 
things as as property, right, within a capitalist system. Um, but for us, uh, totem poles are a visual. I call I, we consider them visual constitutional archives, right? They tell our family history. They tell our rights to our territories, to our land. They tell our relationships to our ancestors from the beginning of time. They tell significant stories that we can learn from in terms of how we can live well within our current context and in, into the future. Um, this particular pole is uh, called a memorial pole. And so it was carved by my ancestral grandmother. And there's a bit of debate within our family if she's my great, 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 great grandmother or my great, 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 great grandmother. Um, but so I just prefer to use the term ancestral grandmother just to make it a little easier for folks and myself included. Um, but her name was Joanna Moody, and she had this pole carved um, in recognition of Zawit, who was, we believe, to be her brother. And so he had passed away uh, during warfare with one of our neighbors. And so she had this totem pole commissioned uh, to honor him, right? And so um, in the pole, um, you see a raven being carved at the bottom of the pole, which is very significant. Um, we also as a house carry the raven crest. And so you see the, the name Dawid is actually being carved in that raven. And so I carry that name as well as my brother. Um, and my brother is Samogat Dawit. And so we both kind of carry the, the male and the female versions of that name. And then you see other significant crests carved into the pole that relate to ancestral beings and to specific types of fish, for example, um, that can only be found within our house territories. And at the top of the pole, you see uh, you see a, hum car a carved human figure, and he has a very large hat on, and you see different rings within that hat, and those rings symbolize, uh, at, at that point, the chief of the house, it would have been Samogat Nisjah, and they symbolize uh, the different um, feasts that he would have had in his lifetime, right? So, we have another pole that's been carved since that time, um, but it's actually inaccurate because it was based on the pole that's in Scotland. And so we've actually had more feasts since that time. So every time that a house has a feast, they add to that ring of ring of um, notches that you see on the hat. So as it currently stands, we've had more feasts than actually are being represented. So that's another conversation that we need to have at some point. How do we how do we add more rings onto that hat? But <laughs> but that's sort of I guess yeah. in a nutshell, how we how we understand a, a totem pole. Great. Thank you. Thank you so much for the explanation. Um, so now, how and when does the request for the rematriation of this totem happen? How did it happen? Uh, with a lot of work and a lot yeah. of challenges. <laughs> um, it, it started off with um, me going over to Samogat Nistal. I call him Uncle Earl. <laughs> I went over to his house one day uh, just to share with him some spiritual cultural information that I found uh, while I was doing some research on our Niska language. And we have a very established archive uh, within the Niskalism's government due to a hundred year treaty that we ratified. And so we have a lot of documentation, a lot of information. And so I was in those archives uh, just looking for something uh, from for a different project and a different grant when I came across some very spiritual information that I was uncertain what to do with. And so I brought that information to Samogat Nistach and I explained to him the context. And in hearing that, he kind of stopped me and said, hey, you got you got money for a grant? Well, we have a, we have a replica pole that's been carved, but we need further funding in order to raise it. 
and he goes, uh, can we use some of your funding to finish raising that? Because we we're going to have a feast and, it, you know, and, and we just need to get the steel to in order to get that pole lifted. It's already ready to go. And I said, well, I, unfortunately, this grant is already allocated to language. I said, but how much money do you need? And it was, you know, during that conversation that I learned just how expensive it is to raise a totem pole. Um, nobody ever sent me to totem pole carving school or totem pole repatriation or rematriation school. Um, so, I, you know, I told him, I said, yeah, I, I can find you some funding, but I'm an academic, first off. So I have to have some type of research attached to it. And then second, you know, it, it'll take about six months um, minimum. And so... And then he said, okay, well, well, while you're at it, he goes, uh, we also need to know a little bit more information about one of the names in that pole. Um, I know that there's an original pole that was stolen from us and is sitting in a museum in Scotland. He goes, if you can find out any more information on that, that would be helpful for us in terms of that name and the name that we're going to give out at the feast. And so that's what started the development of a grant, um, but also uh, supported my understandings of where the poll was. I learned that it was currently being housed in the National Museums of Scotland. And then after doing a little bit further digging, I also discovered that it was Marius Barbeau, a colonial ethnographer who is very well known um, on the Northwest Coast and within a university setting, uh, that it was him who had stolen our poll um, and that he'd been given permission by the Canadian government and specifically Duncan Campbell Scott, who's quite notorious, um, had given him permission uh, to take that. And then he ended up ultimately selling it to the Royal Scottish Museum at the time, which is now transferred into the title um, National Museums of Scotland. And so uh, one of the other things that Uncle Earl had pointed out to me that day was that sometime before the ratification of the Niska Treaty, uh, the Niska Treaty was ratified in 2000. And now that we've done a little bit further research, cultural research in particular, we think that the delegation would have shown up there in 1991. Um, but they, we had sent a, a formal Niska delegation through many European museums in anticipation of our treaty being ratified. And at that point, we were looking for many stolen belongings. And so they had gone to the museum and they had been told that the pole was too old to be moved. And, you know, so as I began to look into where the pole was uh, with my current research, I'd also noticed that the museum had moved the pole since 1991. So that made me really angry. And I thought there was there's some parameters on the grant that I was applying for that it had to be a high risk grant in order to have high reward. And it had to be, you know, there had to be a part of the project that may not be able to be accomplished. And I thought, okay, well, I don't want to pathologize my own people, but this is probably a piece that could be very challenging to, to achieve given this context. And so I put that in there and I, I told Uncle Earl, I said, you know, if we get this grant, we're going to go to Scotland and we're going to ask them for a pullback. <laughs> So that's that's sort of how it how it started, and uh, there's been many developments since that time. Um, so, can you tell us a bit of what the challenges were from when you actually went there and what happened when you visited and asked for it? Yeah, so I guess I think first and foremost, it, you know, it always starts if we think about self determination, and and that's been a really really strong strand for us in terms of what I think has been significant about our case is the self-determination element, the fact that we are a self-determining self nation um, within British Columbia. Uh, but the bigger piece for us initially was really getting our own people to see the bigger vision, right? And you know, we had to use different strategies and skills to help people to not only understand, but actually believe that it could be possible. 
Uh, and so when I think about self-determination, you know, it starts with me, it starts with you, and then it goes outward, right? And I think for those of us who live in ongoing forms of colonialism, it can be really hard to have that longer-term vision. And so our first steps were really supporting our family members, uh, our community, and those within our nation to see that what would be possible get, to get the pullback. But along with that, I think we also had to demonstrate incredible responsibility and work ethic. Um, in terms of our time and our resources. You know, I think I'm very fortunate and very privileged to have a full-time employment. Um, I'm a Canada Research Chair, I'm an academic, so I also have access to a lot of resources and a lot of privilege that many other Indigenous communities might not have in doing this work. But alongside that, I think I've estimated that I've put in almost a year of my own personal time. Like if you add up everything that I've done, there is some overlap with the research that I do, but there's also significant cultural work that I do. Um, and so I think I've done almost a year of my own personal time um, in unpaid labor to support this rematriation process, as has Samogat Nistal. Um, you know, for example, we are now talking almost every night about different dimensions of the work. Um, he does a lot of our internal cultural work and I do a lot of the external external international work that's needed on the poll. But in the beginning, when we first started, uh, we, we secured our own funding to go there. We didn't have any other funding and it was academic funding uh, that paid for us to go as a delegation. Uh, even the writing of the grant itself, that took over a month of my own personal time. Uh, and there's no guarantee that we were going to get that funding, but we did. <laughs> there are little things like, you know, there's a lot of emotional labor that goes into the work. Uh, you know, I had to personally book travel arrangements for almost eight members to go to Scotland. And that included supporting people who've never traveled internationally, uh, helping them uh, get their passports, advocate for them to get their passports. Uh, we also had to hire our own communication specialists. And that helped us to support uh, a, like an international communication strategy. I learned I had to learn how to speak to the media. I had to learn how to navigate the media. And along with that, uh, as a scholar, I knew it was important to find allies and look for people to work in solidarity with. And so I had to seek out people in extreme places of privilege in the UK and learn how to form, uh, like, uh, I guess, allies in scholarship um, and be able to write book chapters. I knew we needed to document things in the colonial archive in order to use archive for our own favors, um, in order to really speak back to the colonial um, mis misappropriation of who we are as a people. Uh, we had to present at conferences. <laughs> in addition to that, we had our own internal work to do, which was ongoing communication with our own Niskalisans government, as well as our Council of Elders. And then um, once we were sort of up and running, uh, it also required us to develop a working group. So we were grateful to get support from the Niska Lisbon's government. Uh, we also began working with the curator of the Niska Museum uh, in order to create a coordinated approach for our traveling and for different representation that would be needed in order to launch a successful case. Uh, in addition to that, I did a lot of research and consultation with leading Canadian museum experts and people who could guide us on sort of international policy around repatriation, as well as assess the condition of the poll and tell us whether or not it could be moved. So we're really grateful for a strong partnership with the Canadian Museums of Anthropology, who have been instrumental in, in this work in terms of that expertise. And then uh, once we got to Scotland, of course, there's many more challenges. We talk about that, but I, I would say that once we left Scotland, uh, that also required us to work with a legal team 
um, it wasn't a smooth journey. And so we also had to work with Iniscalism's lawyer, um, Jim Aldridge and Associates, uh, who supported us in our negotiations for the final three months of our work with the National Museums of Scotland. And of course, now we're at the happy end of everything uh, where we're, we're now um, working to coordinate technical experts on both sides, uh, both through the NISCA Museum and with the National Museums of Scotland, and also through our partnership with the Museum of Anthropology in order to um, learn how to deinstall this uh, very old and very sacred pole and get it from uh, Scotland back to the NAS. So that's not my area of expertise and just really grateful that we do have these technical experts on board with us. And uh, now a lot of the work ahead of us is uh, consulting again with our own people internally and ensuring that we are conducting uh, the right and the appropriate spiritual protocols in order to move the pole. So we will be returning to Scotland in August. Uh, we'll be there on August 28th with uh, the same delegation that went to Scotland last year at the same time. Um, in addition, we'll be traveling with the Niska Nation president and, and at least one more hereditary chief in order to conduct an important spiritual ceremony to ask the pole to go to sleep. And of course, we're also now needing to coordinate uh, the pole's arrival home, uh, which is really a good problem for us to have. Uh, it'll be arriving on September 29th and we'll be bringing the pole home from the airport. Um, uh, on the back of, I guess, a semi-truck, and uh, we'll be leading it through a procession-style home uh, to the Nass Valley, to the museum, uh, where we'll have a welcoming home ceremony and an international feast, and then it'll be installed at, at that point into our museum. So those are just some of the, like, I guess, the huge responsibilities yeah. and some of the challenges that we've encountered. Um, but there's other additional kind of factors uh, that have also come up. I know for myself as an academic, uh, I've had to deal with ongoing institutional racism within the university. Um, even though we do have a grant, uh, it's being administered through the university. It's also uh, a, a very prestigious grant that comes from the Social Science Humanities Research Council of Canada. But even after we've gone undergo undergone significant peer review, and have been successful with this grant, we still have to deal with colonial control of our money and our grant through the university. And it's a system that is, continues to be hostile uh, to Indigenous-led research. And so ultimately for myself as a scholar and anybody, any other Indigenous scholar that does Indigenous-led community research, we do dual or triple the labor, right? And so the university ultimately benefits from our work when we're successful, but is rarely responsible um, in, in, in supporting us to make the changes that are necessary that allows us to do our jobs to be successful. Um, and one of the things I'd just like to highlight, we have a very archaic accounting system within the university. And so even though we had grant funding, I still had to put our entire delegations trip on my credit card, okay, on my personal credit card. And I had another trip that I went to on a conference with where I brought knowledge holders with. And so between these two trips, I had over $80,000 that I had to commit to out of my personal funding in order to do this research. And then on top of that, it took eight weeks of activism with the university after I had Dean's approval in order to get that funding back. So it's incredibly stressful. And I also had to pay the interest on that $80,000 because my university actually has a policy where that even if you have met all the accounting standards, you have gotten all your paperwork in time, which I did, that if they decide to take longer or if they decide to challenge something or they decide to ask further questions or somebody's on vacation, um, you they can take as long as they want and they are not responsible for paying interest on our credit cards. And so in many ways, I feel like we're still being treated like we're children 
we, that the university itself won't even allow us to have our own credit cards to do this important work. So that's that was a huge issue for me in terms of having to pay interest on $80,000 in order to be able to support this work and to have absolutely very little support from the university in terms of making its structures more supportive of what we're actually doing. I think now that we've also gained recognition for our work, uh, we're also experiencing attempts of uh, appropriation of our story by non-Indigenous peoples, as well as I've seen some recent concerns arise with some non-Indigenous people who are working with us, who I see, um, although they've been supportive of, of the work itself, I also see that they're being very instrumental in terms of using our work uh, that we have done uh, to support their own upward career mobility. So there's, those are just some of the challenges. You know, we did a, we did a lot of uh, preparation in advance to going to Scotland, and part of that was me writing a book chapter with Samogat uh, Duke, who was our hereditary chief that holds the oral memory of the pole theft. Um, in addition to that, I also presented at other academic conferences in the UK to build awareness. And so it was at one of those conferences where um, Dr. John Giblin from the National Museums of Scotland was present and he heard me talk about our, our intentions of rematriating our poll from the National Museums of Scotland. And he sat through the presentation, but he didn't identify himself. And so I actually was unaware of who he was or his position. And about six months later, he did contact me. We already had intentions of going to the National Museums of Scotland, but we were just waiting to ensure that we had all of our paperwork lined up and that we were traveling in optimal conditions, um, out, like just waiting for COVID to finish. So he had approached me about six months later and offered to share some of the files on the poll itself for my research. Uh, and so it was in that email that I responded back that we were intending to come over there to repatriate the poll. And so the policy uh, from the museum that they recently created, and it's a really long term, but it's something about the UK transfer of objects to non-UK contacts from the National Museums of Scotland, which is ultimately what I would consider a repatriation policy that was shared with us. Um, but we didn't get into any really formal discussions until we showed up at the museum uh, last August. And so, you know, we knew it was really important going in there um, that we took control of the meeting and that we um, we approached the poll and everything that we're doing according to NISCA law and our ceremonies. And so we arrived in full regalia. Um, we had a, a Geldamalia, um, which is something that our family would do culturally to have somebody speak on our behalf. They they introduced who we were, why we're there. We sang a song of our ancestral rights to that pole and the village that we came from um, to signify our ownership uh, in Niska law. And then we're brought to the pole. Uh, we felt it was really important to keep the museum staff present uh, during our first um, connection with the pole. We wanted them to experience the full emotions as part of um, their own learning and their own professional development of what it meant for us as the first living family members to ever see that poll um, since it was stolen over 90 years ago. Uh, we also you know, sang songs. Uh, we came with a peace song to demonstrate our intentions for peace. And we also came with gifts and that would be appropriate for us to call witnesses. And so we treated the museum staff as witnesses to our first interactions with our poll that day. So it was a really beautiful ceremony and it meant a lot to all of us. Um, and then following that, we went into uh, formal negotiations into a different room with the museum. And that's where we really felt the clash of worldviews and the clash of misunderstandings. And so uh, we right away informed them that 
their policy, uh, which was less than a year old, was not relevant to us. It was not relevant to our laws, our ontology and our epistemology. And that we were there to ask them why they're in possession of st stolen property and have them prove to us how, 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 like how it came to be in their possession. And so I think that took them by surprise. Um, following that, we also informed them um, that we didn't feel it was appropriate for us to have to write a case um, and to go through their formal policy structure and that we were an oral peoples and we were based on oral tradition. And of course we can write, but did we have to write? Not necessarily. We were there to have the conversation and we expected that they we could be understood in the way that we were communicating. Um, so the other things that we felt was important as well was looking at the procedures is that they also um, had a separation between um, the museum staff that were interacting with that day and the board of directors. And it would be the board of directors that would ultimately make the decision of whether or not the poll could be transferred back to us. And so, you know, we noticed an absence of anybody from the board of directors and we were told that in order for them to remain neutral, um, that they would not be present. And so right away, uh, my first comment to that was that no museums are neutral and any museum that's in possession of stolen property uh, has a vested interest to maintain power and control over, over Indigenous belongings. So I think we need to drop the pretense that any museum is neutral and um, that somehow that there could be some type of um, objective stance taken by the museum in terms of uh, working with our case. We also explained that it's really important for us to have leadership meet us on the ground because that's how we interact with each other. We we always make sure that our leaders are there and our leaders aren't removed from us, right? So that took some negotiations for us to be able to meet with the board of directors. It didn't happen that day. Uh, it happened about two days later and I understand that was a major concession on their part. And then we also went through the same protocols again and explained the exact same things again. Uh, following that, we were fortunate we'd already scheduled a meeting with the Scottish Government and due to our escalation of our case and to our ongoing interactions with the media, uh, we were, I believe, channeled up a little bit further into the Scottish Government. And so we ultimately were allowed to meet with a Scottish Cabinet Minister. Um, and so his portfolio was in Heritage and External Relations. His name was um, Mr. Angus Robertson. And we did feel in that meeting, uh, he was very supportive and we had a very different um, level of warmth from him and a commitment. However, he was quite clear in his comments to us um, that there had to be a clear separation between culture and politics and that he had to allow culture to do its job. And then once it got onto his desk, then he could do the politics. Um, but if it got onto his desk, he promised to expedite that and to support it as much as he could from his end. And so, um, there was a bit of hope with that meeting and, um, you know, but ultimately uh, we left Scotland with no certainty of uh, our case or whether or not it was going to um, be received in a good way. Uh, but we did get a commitment that they would make a decision within three months, which is a precedent when you look at um, the other case uh, with the Heisler Peoples and the first totem pole that was repatriated out of Europe. It took almost 15 years. So over that three months, uh, that's where we had to involve our lawyers. Um, and now, now that I look back on that, I think it's actually kind of crazy that we went to Europe without a lawyer. <laughs> but um, I guess some of the other other challenges with that was um, just the total ex exclusion that we felt around the handling of our case. I think there are many things that museums can do differently uh, in terms of decolonizing practice. And that would be one thing that I would encourage the National Museums of Scotland, as well as any other European museum or any museum, is involving the rights holders in the 
development of the, of the case that needs to go forward for the decision. We should be able to review the materials, not just provide the materials, but also review the materials, have a part of the writing process. Uh, if we don't want to be part of the writing process, we should at least be able to read it and provide commentary on that. In addition to that, we also, especially given my level of expertise, as well as Teresa Schober's, uh, Teresa Schober was the national, was our uh, museum curator that was there, but given both of our levels of expertise, we could also have weighed in on who the reviewers of our case was, you know, and, and, and that and, and that wouldn't have been an issue for us to be able to find colleagues or to be able to identify people who could actually culturally assess our case in a way that was relevant. Um, so we had no control over the reviewers that were chosen for our case. We could not read the materials that were presented on our case and we were kept in the dark. We'd also requested that we be present at the board meeting as witnesses uh, in order to be able to witness what was being put forward on the table about our case and we're also kept out of that meeting. And so for us, we felt a total lack of control over our own story and over our own desires to rematriate our poll. And so those are some practices and some ongoing challenges that, that I think could easily be addressed if museums are willing to give up their power and to be vulnerable and to actually really truly want to work with us collaboratively. Great, thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Um, I think we can ask now, Barbara, what is UNESCO's role? Maybe more specifically the Canadian Commission's uh, on the repatriation or rematriation of indigenous objects? Yeah, that's a, a good question. And before I, I answer specifically that question, I'll just back up yeah. a little bit and tell you yeah. sort of a, a, a broad overview of, of UNESCO and and the role of, of national commissions within UNESCO, just to, to provide some context to that. So um, UNESCO, which stands for the UN, the United Nations Educational, Scientific and Cultural Organization, was founded after the Second World War. And the purpose of it was to promote world peace through the exchange of knowledge and facilitating intercultural dialogue among member states. So that was the, the goal for founding UNESCO. And UNESCO is the only UN agency that has national commissions. And the role of a national commission is really to act as a bridge uh, if you like, between UNESCO programs and networks and member states. So at the Canadian Convention for UNESCO, we coordinate and raise awareness for uh, UNESCO initiatives in Canada. And we also bring the voices of Canadian experts to the international stage. And so, and one of UNESCO's primary objectives is to safeguard and support all cultural heritage. So really supporting repatriation, rematriation of Indigenous belongings falls into one of UNESCO's main priorities. And so UNESCO fulfills this in several ways. Um, one of the ways is by brokering and providing guidelines, recommendations, or other normative instruments, such as conventions, declarations, for member states to follow. And although UNESCO can't force member states to abide by these different normative instruments, it does encourage member states to enact ethical frameworks and encourage them to create legislative support to implement these conventions or other normative instruments effectively. And at the National Commission, we really work at the national level to, to support that work. And um, we do this specifically by doing things like collaborating with museums and other cultural institutions in Canada and abroad to raise awareness about the importance of repatriation and rematriation work, and also foster that dialogue and cooperation between, you know, source communities, Indigenous communities, and cultural institutions. And we also support initiatives um, and partnerships that uh, allow for the sharing of information. So, you know, 
promising practices on rematriation, repatriation is, is important, and also making sure that people are aware of the normative instruments that they can use to advocate for themselves um, when they're in these international arenas. Right. So so those are just a, a few things. Uh, this is uh, some of the ways that UNESCO supports that work. And at the Canadian Commission, I, I just thought I'd give a few specific examples to bring it even more concrete. Um, so right now we're collaborating with Amy uh, on an article um, from Muse magazine, which is the Canadian Museums Association's publication um, to share some of the promising practices to come out of the, the story of this uh, poll rematriation. We want really a lot of more museum professionals to be aware of and, and learn from this story and for Indigenous communities as well. We're also collaborating with the Canadian Museums Association on a symposium on repatriation and rematriation that will take place this fall. So those are just like very specific ways that that we try to to support this work. Thank you so much for sharing that as well. I think it would be very interesting to for anyone to access access these promising practices that will be after all the learning and everything that you've you both have already learned from the experience. In following this specific case, do you know about any laws or treaties that maybe you both can can answer this? Do you know any that actually supports the rematriation or, or repatriation of indigenous objects? There are several normative instruments that can be applied that are international. And when it comes to Indigenous repatriation and rematriation, I would say that the strongest one is the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. Um, there are several articles that deal with cultural belongings and the rightful ownership and, and sovereignty over our cultural belongings. And our Article 12 specifically mentions repatriations of our ancestors and also um, of, of other ceremonial belongings um, and then supports that those those rights. Um, but I think that the declaration as a whole works together to support um, the, the the self-determination over our cultural heritage. So so I think that's a, a really, really strong one. Um, there's also the 1970 UNESCO Convention on the means of prohibiting and preventing the illicit import, export and transfer of ownership of cultural property. And I really apologize in advance for the really long titles I'm going to give you as <laughs> conventions and norm other normative instruments. But the 1970 convention mostly deals with preventing illicit trafficking of cultural belongings, but it also encourages the return of stolen or illegally exported cultural belongings to the rightful owners. Um, and then there's another instrument. Um, it's a 2015 recommendation concerning the protection and promotion of museums and collections, their diversity and their role in society. And this recommendation does not provide any specific guidelines or procedures for repatriation, but it does emphasize the importance of for museums to consider repatriation claims and promotes ethical standards um, and dialogues between museums and communities of origins. And of course, Anna Paula, you're very familiar, and I'm sure many listeners are familiar with the ICOM Code of Ethics for Museums, um, which really, you know, emphasizes ethical considerations for repatriation when there's, you know, evidence of illegal or unethical acquisition. In Canada, we have the recent uh, Truth and Reconciliation Commission and Calls to Action. And within the BC context in 2019, we saw the adoption of the United Declarations on the Rights of Indigenous People into an act, which we call DRIPA. And then specifically um, moving into the NISCA final agreement, which applies to us, um, which uh, the NISCA final agreement for folks who are unfamiliar with us is the first modern land claims agreement in British Columbia. 
and it, it was ratified in 2000 with our treaty partners, British Columbia and Canada. And within the NISCA final agreement, we have Chapter 17 that specifically looks at the repatriation, is a term they use, uh, the repatriation of NISCA cultural treasures and the requirement for Canada and British Columbia to support our endeavours to have our belongings returned to us. So the um, goodwill of yeah. museums and cultural <laughs> organisations and governments is still very much needed. Um, and and um, yeah, there's still a lot of colonial mindsets to change. and. And, you know, museums are colonial institutions, so there's a lot of, of work to be do done, but there's there's a lot of momentum too, though, for change. So. I did want to just highlight as well, sorry, I'm just going to take over here. But I talked about the struggles, but I think it's also important to recognize that within any system, with any colonial system, you know, there's always the ability of people within the system to challenge it and to transform it and to take professional risks. And we certainly encountered many people of that nature. And so we are grateful. We know that there were people working internally in the National Museums of Scotland who did support us and, and has definitely taken more than one professional risk to <clears throat> ensure that our what we're be, being what we are voicing and our needs were being heard um, and speaking to others within the power structure itself. And certainly there's others within um, our relationships with our treaty partners all the way up to surprising allies like the Canadian military that have helped us. And so it's just important to recognize the power of, you know, each person. We all have we all have that ability to support self-determination, whether we're Indigenous or not. And and it often does take um, extra education, um, but also that willingness to do something different and to push um, systems that are typically not responsive to our needs. We've come to the very end of our episode where we have this section of the rapid fire questions where we ask our guests specific questions about recommendations, basically for further the experience of our audience. Um, so could you share with us resources that can be that people can explore to gain a deeper understanding of best practices in rematriation or repatriation? I know it might seem already connected to um, the practices that you're already going to share, but if you have any other recommendation, it's very much welcome. I'm curious as to whether Amy and I have the same resources. <laughs> um, Go ahead. You can well, I, I definitely want to recommend the Indigenous Repatriation Handbook, which was written by three amazing Indigenous women, uh, Jisganika Collison um, and Lucy Bell and Luann Neal. Um, it's it's an amazing resource. It was, it was developed for Indigenous communities and peoples wanting to undertake the repatriation process. But I, I encourage any museum professional to read it as well because they will... I think get a better understanding of of the work and the like everything involved and and it has really um and they can become better allies and and find ways to support when um re repatriation processes so i think that's a really amazing resource and then the canadian museums association has just published their move to action uh report which is uh called activating undrip in canadian museums and it has a, a really strong section on repatriation so i point to those two resources yeah, and if folks want to learn more about our work on this specific project, then I invite you to visit my website, amyparent.ca. Uh, we have written a book chapter um, on the early stages of our rematriation journey, and I wrote that book chapter with Samagat Duke, William Moore. And the book chapter is in Emma Bond and Michael Morris's uh, book called Transnational Scotland, Empire, Heritage and Stories, and it's accessible for free online. And then I, there's also not a 
book, but a film that I would recommend for folks in the museum community. And it's a film by Maya Tailfeathers, and it's called Cessna, The City Before the City. And in that film, you'll learn more about the Musqueam uh, people who are Coast Salish peoples here in um, what is colonial known as the city of Vancouver and tells the story of their history in this land and their ongoing sovereignty within these lands. But they also talk about the discursive reframing of the term belongings from object and some of the collaboration that they have done with the Museum of, uh, Museum of Anthropology and why they use the term belongings. And I think that's a really important um, film for people to watch and to learn about that discursive shift. All right, thank you. Thank you so much for your recommendations. And also thank you so much for being here and sharing your story with us. We've come to the end of our episode. So thank you so much for tuning into Museums and Chill. We hope you enjoyed this conversation with Amy Baron and Barbara Filio. Don't forget there is a new episode every second Friday of every month. And thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.